The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Rob Fox. He owns and operates the Genuine Fox Farm near Tripola, Iowa, with his partner Tammy, where they grow a wide variety of produce and raise poultry for local sales. They are committed to sustainable growing practices and have maintained organic certification since 2007. Dr. Fox also is the Pesticide Action Network's Communications Associate for Iowa, joining that organization in 2020. Dr. Fox earned a doctoral degree in computer science as well as adult education and has worked as a software engineer and post-secondary educator in the field of computer science. But we're going to focus on his organic farming methods today and a fantastic article that caught my attention titled Living a Dicamba Nightmare. Welcome, Rob. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm curious first to ask how you became interested in organic farming. You had a solid career in computer science and adult education. How did you go from that field to farming? Well, it's not as if I trained for that specifically, I guess, if you look at my education. Basically, we have a family where both of us have PhDs and both of us wanted to teach at a small college. And you can't necessarily find two jobs at the same location. So I initially had a job in computer science teaching, and then my lovely bride got a job at our current location, and I followed, and we needed something for me to do, and we had been gardeners prior to this point, and we felt like local foods needed a little bit more help in the area. So that's that's what got us started. So did you have this farm in the family, or did you buy it? The farm that we have, we actually purchased the farm, at least a section of it. Most of the land was carved off of it, which is pretty common in Iowa. So we have 15 acres, which is certainly enough to get yourself into trouble and have plenty to do. Well, I thought it was interesting because you have set up a CSA, and we'll talk about some of the transitions that you've had to face just because of the challenges that our society has brought forth to many farmers. But on 15 acres, how many families have you been able to feed? Yeah, 15 acres doesn't seem like much, but our CSA program was able to do 120 families, some of which would actually split a share because we would give them more than they could use. In one season, we have been able to produce anywhere from 15 to 17 tons of food, and that would include both vegetables, fruits, and livestock. Wow. And this is so exciting because we know that local food is going to be the freshest and involve the least amount of fossil fuel in terms of transporting it distance-wise. So this is all promising. Now, you went from having 40 crops you transitioned to 25. Why did you make that shift? We made the shift to fewer vegetable crops in part because we were watching demand for our CSA program decline. 
and we were not able to recover that demand. So we were looking for other places to sell. You know, we wanted to continue to grow. So we were looking for other places to sell. And if I wanted to sell, say, an institution like a school, often they wanted more of specific crops. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to focus on things we could sell in larger amounts. And I'll also be honest, this is a hard job. And it's extremely hard to grow 40 different crops and do them all well. You have to expect some of them to do poorly every single season. Right. Uh, so in some ways, it was it was a way to try and continue to do the work and continue to stay positive about it, which is hard to do. Uh, one of the things a good friend of mine says about farming is, is if you don't fail frequently, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, that's great. Well, there are a lot of lessons to be learned with failures. That's true. I'm curious about your experience with your CSA shares in that you saw a decline in demand. What do you think was the root cause of that? I think that there are two causes to this, and one would be more of a personal individual business thing, that every small business that's a family business goes through a cycle of normal promotion. You build up to a certain size. And then people who are in the program are either aging out or their life is changing and they move on. And so there's going to be natural ebbs and flows. But I think the other thing was the larger issue that uh, CSA was, when we started, the hot topic. That was the way you could support local foods is join a CSA. That is no longer the word on the streets. So it takes a lot more effort, a lot more motivation to get people to join it because, frankly, CSA is somewhat inconvenient. It's not as easy as going to the store and picking up the five things you want and leaving whenever you want to go to the store. Mm-hmm. And we should just let our listeners know that CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and it involves the person who joins to pay up front and then you help the farmer then with his immediate costs, and then you reap the benefits through the harvest throughout the season. What I have noticed in my rural communities and what has happened to many of the farmers at my local market is that the pandemic actually drove CSA demand. You know, people wanted to sign up. They wanted to make sure that they were going to have access to local food because the markets had shifted. And things weren't available in the grocery store as they had always expected. Yeah, that that is correct. We saw that in Iowa as well. Unfortunately for our farm, we had already made the decision to move away from the CSA this season. That that was something we decided in the early winter months last year. So it wasn't going to be something that our farm in particular was going to to see, unlike other farms. Right. Uh, we did something a little different. We did something called uh, farm credits where we let people buy a certain amount of credit toward purchasing. But frankly, we were already moving out from the system, so we did not benefit from that. Yeah. And I, I think one thing I wanted to say is what I'm worried about is because I have many friends who are CSA farmers. I am worried that a number of these people will now feel like there isn't an issue with the food supply chain and leave these farmers who are thinking, hey, look, I'm able to support now 150 families. And I would hate to see half of them decide not to come back next year. Yeah. Well, I think the magic in having access to local food is in the taste of the food. And so if you've had, maybe you've been going to the grocery store and you haven't been able to get what you want, so you suddenly start buying from a local farmer and you you realize, 
oh my gosh, the taste is so much better when it's local, and some would argue local and organic, that maybe and hopefully this will push a trend towards more and smaller farms. I don't know. The future is is left <laughs> to see. But the other issue that you brought up with regard to the pandemic is that you found that it was harder to have help on the farm. And I, I don't know that that's something that people might consider. But when you've got farm labor and you've got a pandemic, you've got to take extra special precautions. Tell me what that was like for you. That is entirely correct. That Farm labor is actually the biggest variable for small farms and especially diverse production. We have to have a lot more help to get everything done. I mean, just think about it this way. If, if I grew two vegetable crops, you can do all kinds of things with mechanical equipment to get things done. You grow 20, now suddenly all of them have their own needs. They all get harvested at different times. You just can't do it yourself, and you can't mechanize it all. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an issue. And what ended up happening for us is most of our labor are high school students or college-age students who work for us during the, the summer months primarily. And pretty much they were not available to us. So our labor went from having three people typically to just myself and Tammy, and even our time was cut short. So that kind of put us at about 25% of the amount of labor hours we'd had in prior years. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point with regard to skill sets. So if you started out with 40 crops then you need 40 different skill sets, really, or knowledge in growing those 40 different crops. And even with 25 crops, that is a lot of skill. And I think it's important for us to remember really what goes into farming. And I'm curious, too, because on top of the crops that you grow, you also have been able to maintain an organic certification, which is, again, another layer of work. What was it that made you decide to become organic and stick with it? Well, certified organic is, is something that we believed in even before we started growing for others when we were just doing our own gardening. And a lot of it has to do with a few particular points. I mean, the first of which is we believe in diversity. And I don't just mean diversity of critters on the farm or diversity of crops. I just mean the whole ecosystem diversity if you have diversity, you have health. And I particularly like the idea of using nature services as opposed to trying to pretend that I know better than nature does. We love supporting our pollinators, for example. So those are two of the big things. But I think the biggest thing for me is we get an awful lot of personal satisfaction and our well-being on the farm comes from walking in fields that we like to be in. And I'll tell you, I like being in a field, of course, where the crops are doing well, but I also like seeing butterflies and insects and frogs and toads and flowers. This is all something that goes hand in hand with the certified organic system if we take it to its ultimate conclusion. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious, with your background being not in biology, where did you learn that biodiversity was so critical for sustainability? You know, uh, part of the learning comes from just being involved in the growing. 
Uh, and I know that that's not the full answer because, of course, I did my share of reading. I asked plenty of people who had more knowledge and experience than I do. There was a lot of conversation that was had. But the biggest lessons almost always come from being outside, doing the work, getting off the tractor or, or, or whatever, and walking and observing. And I can't tell you how many times we saw things that told us, you know what, if you work with nature, you're going to have more benefits than if you work against it. Yeah. The question is, of course, how do you work with nature? That's a difficult question. Right. And it's probably very much region-specific. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. It's not just region-specific either. It can be soil-specific. It can be topography, as in, you know, do you have hills or is it flat ground? And what else surrounds you? What kinds of trees are there? What kinds of water sources are there? Uh, our ground, for example, is very flat, and there's no place for water to go, and our soils are heavy. So during a year where we get extra rainfall, we have to fight a little bit. Uh, in a year where, like this year where it was drier, it's a perfect year for us. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to talk about climate, but before we leave the biodiversity topic, I want to bring forth something that you had you had presented at an Iowa farming conference, and that was what happens when you bring in pollinators and what that does to food production. So you tell a story where you planted one-third less melon seeds, but you ended up getting one-third more melons. How did that happen? Yeah, this is one of my favorite success stories for our farm. Uh, you know, we were growing melons as one of our crops, and we like to grow different kinds of melons, so we have variety for the customers. Uh, but pretty much we focused on growing the cash crop, get the melons into this much space, grow this many plants, and get the production you need. Um, we maybe would put flowers on the edges of the field and leave it at that. And one year I decided, you know what, we know that melons need pollinators if you want melons. So let's, let's do an experiment, and it was pretty bold. I said, I'm going to use one-third of the space that I usually use for melon plants for flowers. Uh, flowers like zinnias, flowers like calendula, uh, some buckwheat. We had some basil flowering in there and a plant called borage. And so we used one-third of the space for pollinator support, thinking, well, if we lose one-third of the production, I, I, at least I will be a field I like to be in and I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, but we actually ended up with 30% more melon production that year than we'd had in prior seasons. So it was a nice affirmation that, yes, if you can find a way to support nature in what you're doing, then you're going to get more production. I will also say that I loved being in that field, but there were a few things that were a little harder for me to do. So I can understand why people sometimes hesitate to do these things, but in my point of view, it was worth every little bit of inconvenience I might have had. Yeah, that's a really great story to prove the power of pollinators. Let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Rob Fox. He is the owner and operator of the Organic Genuine Fox Farm near Tripola, Iowa. So getting back to why I called you in the first place was because of your work with the Pesticide Action Network and your communication work and a post that you wrote 
titled Living a Dicamba Nightmare. And as I explain to many farmers, I feel that we work in partnership. You produce the foods that I recommend to my clients to promote their health. Everybody wants to prevent cancer, heart disease, inflammation. How do we do that? Well, in part, we do that with a really healthy diet that's high in antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds. In other words, just the fruits and vegetables that you are producing on your farm. But we've got a problem, and that has to do with dicamba drift. Tell me about that. Yeah, dicamba is an interesting chemical. It's, it's an herbicide, so it's used to control weeds. And it's used in all kinds of row crops in Iowa. I think you'll find that it's used for a lot of our corn. It's, it's used for various other crops. But in particular, it has been used since 2016-2017 for corn and soybeans after they've emerged from the ground. So we are, have leaves out there, and you're dri- driving a spray rig over them, and you're applying dicamba on those plants at that point in time. The problem is, is that that means we're spraying this chemical when temperatures are getting warmer and conditions are perfect for a problem that's called volatilization. In other words, it becomes a vapor after it's been applied properly to the plants, and it becomes that vapor as much as four days after application, and it can rise up and it can move as far as a half mile or more away from the target site. So what ends up happening is now you get this chemical on non-target plants, such as plants on our farm. And you lost how many rows of multicolored peppers? Well, here's the, the worst part about all of this. Dicamba is what's called a growth inhibitor. So it doesn't necessarily kill the plant outright. What it does is you'll notice your plant looks healthy, and then when it tries to put out some new leaves, they'll be small, they won't fill out all the way, and of course, if it has any fruits, it tends to drop those or it'll drop the flowers. So in the past, we would harvest between 750, 850 pounds of bell peppers a season, and in 2017 through 2019, we averaged about 30 pounds. Oh so that's, that's about 800-pound average versus a 30-pound average as a result of drift from dicamba. And that's just one of our crops. It also affects tomatoes and the other wonderful fruits and vegetables that you were growing. Do you have a dollar value in terms of how much you lost? Well, I'll just put it in perspective. Typically, I would be selling, if I were selling in bulk certified organic bell peppers, I could sell that between $1.50 to $2 a pound. So... You could say maybe that's $1,600 a year just for bell peppers. And if you consider that we also grow other sweet peppers at about the same amount of poundage or about the same price, you can begin to get an idea just for one small farm what the loss could look like. Mm. And what are your options? Well, I have. we're actually doing a couple of things to address this. But again, part of the issue here is that I'm being forced to address something that I'm not sure I should have to be forced to address. Right. One example that we're doing is we have 
two high tunnels. These are plastic-covered buildings that we can grow inside. So we've been moving our pepper production inside those buildings, but there's a limited amount of space in there, and we have other crops we want to grow in there as well. So we have found that peppers will grow just fine in there because they're apparently protected enough, but at the same time, our field peppers will struggle. So that's one thing we're doing. The other thing we're doing is we're starting to move away from growing peppers or any produce for fresh eating. We're starting to look at just growing for seed production and moving away from producing food for people. That's tragic. It seems to me that there should be a legal course of action. We have corporations that are making money from the sale of the genetically resistant crops and from the herbicide, both. And yet we have farmers who are contributing to public health being forced to change what they grow. And it's not just the amount of money that you've lost on the sale of your crop. It's the health consequences of the people in your community who no longer have access to your health-promoting food. Yeah, I agree with that. I, and I think what's incredibly disheartening for me is the fact that as a person who grew up in Iowa, one of the things I grew up believing, and I think I was, was taught this, is that people in Iowa look out for each other. We're good neighbors. Mm. That, that's what I was taught. And the whole premise of using a chemical that was known when Monsanto first developed the seeds that were resistant to dicamba, they knew and they were expecting that there would be issues and, in fact, prepared for it. And, in fact, this information was discovered when the Bader Farms, the, the peach orchards down in uh, southern Missouri, sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they uncovered the fact that Monsanto was had knowledge. They expected to have complaints, but they still pursued registration of the product. It was still allowed. It's, they still promote the product, and they continue now as Bayer, because Monsanto was purchased by Bayer, they continue now to push the product because it's it's a big moneymaker. This is the way they try and maintain their their sales. Right. So it, it's discouraging. It's difficult. Nonetheless, we're still trying to do things uh, to, to prevent its use and to fight the re-registration of the product. Well, I was glad to see that the Bader Farms that lost so much, they lost hundreds of thousands of production of peaches. I was glad to see that they won in the courts. And I would like to hope that we see more lawsuits putting an end to the use of this herbicide. Now, I noticed that you were trained as a drift catcher in 2015. Tell me how you came to be trained in that and what you found. Are you measuring dicamba specifically? Or are you catching other other chemicals as well? Well, I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah, I, I was first introduced to Pesticide Action Network, at least more directly, when they sponsored the drift catching program for some interested farmers in the state of Iowa. And I was one of those who volunteered to do that. Its purpose at the time was more for the insecticide and fungicide spraying that typically happens the end of July in Iowa. Otherwise, it, so it would not be checking for dicamba in this particular case. It was checking for more of those kinds of pesticides. 
And it basically meant that we spent time during spray season twice a day going out and taking these little test tubes with the resins in them out, properly storing them in a freezer, keeping records, and then when you got a certain amount, you'd send them in. One of the amazing things that we found, I, I don't know if you've discussed core pyrifos before in this program, but mm-hmm. that's a, it's a well-known pesticide. We actually recorded an amount that came from a spraying that was a mile plus away from us on a day when the winds were heading our direction at less than five miles an hour. Wow. So keep that in your head. One plus mile away, five mile an hour peak wind speed in our direction, and we were actually able to register amounts that were too high if you had a child less than a year old and they had constant exposure to it. Oh, exactly. Yeah, we have covered that topic because it it harms children's brains, and we came so close to banning its use in the last administration, and I'm hoping we will revisit that topic. There is any chemical that harms a child's brain. It seems like a no-brainer to want to ban it, but again, the idea that somebody could be making money from something was more important Well, you now write and communicate for the Pesticide Action Network of North America. You are based in Iowa, so I'm assuming you have a lot of these kinds of stories in your posts. And I want to direct people to that website. It's simply panna.org. But Rob, I want to just give you a chance. We have a couple of minutes left. Do you want to share anything more specifically about anything that we've brought up or something I might have neglected to address? Yeah, I I was kind of hoping to mention a couple things about why in particular I am so concerned about drifts. And just to keep it perfectly real here, I just want to talk about it from the perspective of just one small farm. I'm worried about the use of chemicals that don't stay on target for multiple reasons, one of which is worker safety. Because, hey, I work this farm, I'm outside all the time. If it's a nice day for spraying, it's probably a nice day for me to work out there. But also, I tend to hire people who are high school students, college students, your kids. And I will not uh, allow them to stay out in the field if it looks like we're going to have chemicals drifting on the farm. It's a worker safety thing, but it's not just worker safety, it's food safety. The chemicals that are being sprayed in the fields next to, to my farm are not rated for you to eat. So if they don't stay where they're supposed to stay, the only thing that I can do is if I suspect that these crops have been drifted on, I have to destroy the crop because I will not give you unsafe food. This is what a local food producer will do. is that will, They'll grow the food, and if they're not sure that it's safe for you, they destroy it because they're interested in your safety. So just looking at it from those two perspectives, chemical drift, off-target applications, It's about the safety of human beings, and I don't think it should be about something else. If we can't manage to keep the chemicals on target, then maybe we need to stop using them altogether. I couldn't agree more. Well, Rob, we're going to have to close because we are out of time, but I want to thank you very much for your work. 
I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Rob Fox. He is the owner and operator of the Genuine Fox Farm near Tripola, Iowa, where he farms with his partner, Tammy, where they grow and sell a wide variety of produce and also raise poultry for local eaters. Thank you so much for your work and for being my guest. Thank you for the chance to speak with you.